Is there a reason why he's called the Black Palmer? He's dressed in black. Okay, that's what it is. Apparently some scholars think that farmers weren't dressed in black normally, right? Um, I don't... It's possibly they think that. Mm. Um, but I think Spencer thought they were dressed in mm. black. Palmers go back... There aren't Palmers around anymore in oh, yeah. uh, Spencer's day. Oh, did you ask why? We why are you interested in it? We were discussing it. Because I didn't know if it was a race thing. Or no, if certainly it was... there were no blacks in England. Yeah, and I thought it would have been interesting if it were a race thing. But yeah. I, and like they also call him, I think it's dark and black, and another time black is uppercased. And so I was wondering, like, where the idea is that it's it was a, coming it's, from. Um, I don't know. Um, Vino knows more than I do about real Palmers. They were supposed uh. to have been dressed in red. And, Why were um, they dressed in red? Uh, I don't know, but apparently that was one of the contentions that lots of scholars had about the veracity of... But then he never has any veracity Wait, with the, all his mythology no, 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 no. and everything anyway. Okay, so, but the idea is that, they, is that <coughs> they're dressed in a kind of mourning. Yeah. Um, what they are are pilgrims. And they're... Um, uh, it's a kind of Chaucerian um, setting of the Fairy Queen. If you try to figure out when the Fairy Queen is set, that's just something you can't figure out. However, you do get, um, uh, as you will see in book three, you get um, a prophecy. And um, the time of King Arthur is, is clearly, if you want to put it in any kind of real chronological time, the Fairy Queen is set in Arthurian days because Arthur is prince. And the idea is that contrary to any Arthurian story, Arthur and Gloriana will get together, <coughs> and um, eventually you'll go down the generations to where you get to Queen Elizabeth. Um, Artigal and Britomart are actually, um, will also get together in the same way, and which, what there is is a prophecy of Artigal's um, and Britomart's, the future of um, their descendants, and that prophecy ends with Elizabeth becoming queen. Um, and then the prophecy breaks off with Merlin saying, but yet the end is not. Um, and no, it isn't the end because, we're, because it brings us down to the present day. But he breaks off in some um, discomfiture, which is something that we need to talk about. Um, it's also a huge joke on um, Spencer's, um, on uh, Chaucer's general prologue. Because when he gets to the line where he goes, so prick them nature in their courages. That long and folk to go on pilgrimage as we are right. That's what we all want to do in spring. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> go on pilgrimages. Yeah, no, it, it, the, the joke at the beginning of the Canterbury Tales is um, it's springtime and nature is really revitalizing our sense of life, and what, what young people really want to do then is go on pilgrimages um, to see the um, tomb of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, because, you know, spring really gets your see-the-tomb-of-the-Archbishop-of-Canterbury hormones roaring. It does for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, for, I mean, for any, any, any person who has any hope of salvation, um, that's how you're going to feel in spring. Um, but no, Chaucer's joke is pricketh him, as, as we said before. Spencer picks up on that joke, a gentle knight was pricking on a plane. Um, yeah, so there he is. And lots um, of pricking in book two. Yeah, and it's also, you know, if you, if you compare the dwarf with Orgoglio. Um, that is, there's a sense in which Orgoglio replaces the dwarf, um, and the dwarf is the one who has to tell Una that Red Cross is, is um, um, enthralled to a giant. Um, if you make that phallic, and God knows I hate making things phallic, but... Um, no, I really do. People think I don't. But for me, it's actually scholarly responsibility. I, I think there's just too much belief that once you hit, once you get the sexual meaning of something, that you've gotten the meaning. That's a kind of standard mistake that people make. Um, it's a very, it's an incredibly easy mistake um, to make. That oh, because that's what dirty jokes are about. Oh, now I get it. Um, and it always, it, we're in, always encouraged to feel um, that we get something when we get its sexual reference. That's what it means to understand something. Um, and it's not what it means to understand something in, in any good work of literature. Of course, sex might very well be part of a good work of literature. It's just not that once you get to the sex, you can stop. Sex is um, an instrument in the hands of a writer rather than um, 
rather than the goal of um, what writing is about. And the pen is mightier than the sword. Yes, the pen is. And um, <laughs> what? <laughs> you guys. Um, and the um, and that's really really true in Spencer. Spencer has no trouble uh, making sex explicit. Um, and when he doesn't make it explicit, it's because he's interested in something else. That is, um, it's it's not the sex; it's the pride. It's not the um, sex; it's the humility. Um, the dwarf, in some sense, is made to represent a kind of humility that um, that the, that Orgoglio is the opposite of um, represents pride. But it's not. Oh, the you know what Freud would say is. Men are ultimately proud. Um, what men want to be proud of most is the size of their penises. That all, all male pride, Freud would say, is pride over, ultimately, is a displaced version of pride over their endowment. Um, and uh, the worse endowed you are, the more you're going to try to um, take pride in other things. And like... Um, try to be, it's like the old joke about what, what do Bill Clinton and Bill Gates have in common. Um, and, uh, which I'm, whose answer I'm not going to give you. Um, but, um, so that Freud will say that people overcompensate, men overcompensate if they're badly endowed, um, and the whole point is that ultimately what you're proud of if you're male is your endowment. Um, that's not what Spencer is saying. What he's saying is people who are concerned about their endowment are concerned about their endowment because of their pride. And it's pride that he's writing about and not penis size. Um, he, too, would throw into his spam folder um, all the ads that, <laughs> that um, come to him about that. Um, because what he's concerned about is the pride. Um, that's what matters to him. And one very clear way to talk about the issue of pride is to bring up the question of endowment, not as the truth of the matter, that's not really what's, what's going on with Red Cross, but it's a way that you can talk about um, the relationship between um, um, pride and um, holiness that, Red, that the story of Red Cross is about. So that's, I just want to keep insisting that sex is, um, in Spencer, sex is, is the um, pathway to meaning. It's not the meaning. Um, there is meaning, but the meaning um, is, is not, aha, it's all sexual. It's rather, oh, that's sexual, because that's another way of talking about these issues. Um, and, and, and I really do think that that's an important thing to know. So the Palmer um, is um, where Chaucer is making his pilgrimage. A, a Palmer is a pilgrim. Um, where Chaucer's pilgrimage is about people wanting um, being pricked to going to see um, the tomb of the Archbishop of Canterbury, but the reason they're actually pricked to it, it's a word Shakespeare is going to pick up also um, in Hamlet, um, that is that pricked thereto by emulet pride is, is the line in Hamlet. Um, you don't remember it? It's about Fortinbras, it's about the dead Fortinbras. There we go. Um, uh, I was wondering where it came in. Yeah, no, it's it's okay. a it's a it's a quick bit of backstory that turns out not to matter in Hamlet, but that's something Shakespeare likes to do unnecessary backstory. Um, the um, Chaucer's joke is well, actually, the reason people are going on this pilgrimage is that it's not really <coughs> that they're so anxious to see um, uh, Beckett's tomb; it's that um, it's like a road trip. And who knows what will happen on a road trip. Uh, what happens in Canterbury stays in Canterbury. Um, but that's Chaucer's joke there. And that's why, the, that's why all the pilgrims are as colorful a bunch as they are. These are not sober, holy people who are just really interested in seeing the holy, blissful martyr um, that him hath help and want that they were sick to see the holy, blissful martyr that helped them when they were sick. Um, they're there for quite other reasons, and that's because that's where the party is. And that's why, that's why the Canterbury Tale starts with the party. That's something that Spencer is alluding to. 
um, in The Fairy Queen. Um, and uh, now he alludes to it by having a Palmer who really is a Palmer, who's not tempted, who's as sexless as you can imagine, um, who's kind of, kind of appalling that way. Um, and so he's dressed in black. Um, clo- black for mourning, black for sobriety, black for Puritanism. Um, that is, uh, the Puritans are becoming an issue in England at the time. Uh, the word Puritan is being used for the first time as Spencer is writing The Fairy Queen. Um, I think if you look it up in the OED, I don't think he uses the word, but I think if you look up the word in the OED, you'll see that it's a term of abuse um, that, that is um, being invented for the first time by those who, and, and it's basically synonymous with, with fanatic. Um, a Puritan is someone who is just absolutely pure in their version of what, um, what godliness requires. And so the word Puritan is a word that people, make, people use to make fun of them. Um, and it then gets embraced by the New England Puritans, by those, by those Puritans who then come to, um, the, to America, to North America, um, about 40, 30 or 40 years after the Fairy Queen. Um, just the way queer is now a term that's embraced when it, when it began as a term of abuse. Puritan also began as a term of abuse. And the parody of them is, yeah, they just wear black and they look serious all the time. It's impossible to get a smile out of them. And they're ridiculous people. And the Palmer in black is um, puritanical, which is, as we saw, the issue of Book Two of The Fairy Queen, the extent to which Puritanism um, is, is inflexible. That is, the temperance as restraint requires a certain kind of inflexibility, requires the destruction of the bower of bliss without any notice of the beauty of the bower of bliss. Um, it's simply destroyed. And, you know, if you were to compare Book Two of the Fairy Queen to the Scarlet Letter, you would not go far wrong. Um, both Hawthorne and Melville, I mentioned Melville last time, but Hawthorne too, um, they, were, they were obsessed with Spencer. And what they were obsessed with was the, was the um, clear tension between the avowed purpose of the Fairy Queen, which was to inculcate virtues of sobriety and morality and holiness and chastity and courtesy and friendship and um, Lord knows what other virtues. Well, Aristotle knows what other virtues. Um, with the fact that the poem is totally wild. With the fact that the poem is just, just goes off in every possible direction um, and it just, just multiplies and multiplies um, wild events, colorful characters, interesting things, um, and and crowd pleasing scenes, um, as you as, you know, I already mentioned one of the great ones in book three, which is um, what uh, the the scene with with um, Malbecco after his wife Helenor deserts him for the goats in the woods because they they're just so much more um, they have so much more stamina than her old husband does, um, and you know that's. You can't read the Fairy Queen without thinking that Spencer ultimately is just enchanted by Fairyland, um, as he himself says, rather than by what Fairyland is supposed to stand for. Um, he just loves being there, and he doesn't love the real world. And the real world—I don't mean only England and Ireland in fifteen in the fifteen nineties—but the real world of um, of God's um, morality. The real world in which chastity and temperance make demands of make moral and theological demands of us. Um, that's not the world Spencer likes. He likes the land of fairy, and that's what he says at the beginning of Book Six of the Fairy Queen, that he's just enchanted by the land of fairy. The steps through which this land of fairy, the steps with which I guide, are so exceedingly spacious and wide. He just loves it there. He loves the fiction. He doesn't love what the fiction is about. He loves the fiction. And that's the tension between um, what the fiction is about and the fiction itself. And again, I'm just going to say, disagree with me if you want in a paper. Um, prove me wrong. That would be great. But I really think that he, like everyone else, 
you're faced with a choice between the fiction and the truth that it stands for. Um, and he says that at the start. I'm sorry I have to do this in fiction and wrapping it in cloudy, um, cloudy allegories, but I do because people just don't like the truth even though they should. But it turns out he's one of the people who doesn't like the truth. It's the cloudy allegories that he likes. Um, if you know Yeats's poem, uh, The Circus Animal's Desertion, Yeats is another poet for whom Spencer was extraordinarily important. Um, a Protestant poet living in Ireland for, is, is one um, connection that they had. Um, in The Circus Animal's Desertion, does anyone know that poem? It's, uh, it might be Yeats's last poem. It probably wasn't, but it's one of those poems that could be and that it makes sense as a last poem. And um, it could well have been his last poem because he might have died before then trying his hand at a few other last poems. Um, so it is meant, it's certainly meant as a possible last poem. And what that poem is about is Yeats describing all his previous poetry, and he says, yeah, all those things, it looked like they had meanings, I said they had meanings, I said they were political, or that they were moral, or that they were theological stories, um, and that they had a theme and importance, but actually that's not what I cared about in any of them. What I cared about was the imagery in them. What I cared about was the surface and not the depth which lost all the light and wonderfulness of the surface. Um, so Yeats explicitly writes about that, but I think Spencer is more or less explicitly writing about that. And one place he writes about it are in these songs. So there are only two songs in The Fairy Queen that are quoted um, all, there are lots of songs mentioned, but only two that are quoted. And we've looked at one already. That is um, the song of mirth. Now let's look at the really great song in the Bower of Bliss. So this is Book 2, Canto 12, um, long, um, stanza... Um, let's... Uh, 74. Yeah, but let's start at uh, 72 just to give it a little context. So this is, this is what um, the Palmer and Guyon are proceeding through the Bower of Bliss. And remember the way, they're, they're, um, the way they go through it is we get to see and linger on and think about stuff that they don't get to see and that they don't think about and linger on. We're given a different view of the Bower of Bliss from Guyon. Um, and which means that Spencer doesn't want us seeing the Bower of Bliss the way Guyon does. He certainly wants us seeing the dragon in Book One the way Red Cross does in Canto Twelve of Book One, but he doesn't want us seeing the the Bower of Bliss. This is almost if this were Book One, it would almost be as though you were seeing the fight from the dragon's point of view, which is you know I'm just living here in my little land and I just want to raise my little baby dragons and show them a good time, but then this bizarre fanatic in armor is coming after me, and he just won't leave me alone, I just try to scare him away, but he just, he's, oh my god, he's killing me, what's that about? That's, uh, in a way, what you're getting um, in, in book two of the Fairy Queen. So, so let's start at stanza 72. There, whence that music seemed heard to be, was the fair witch herself now solacing. So where do we see that word solacing like that before? Mirth. Mirth was doing that in, in Canto 6. Herself now solacing with a new lover, whom through sorcery and witchcraft she from far did thither bring. There she had him now laid a slumbering in secret shade after long wanton joys, whilst round about them pleasantly did sing many fair ladies and lascivious boys, that ever mix their song with light, licentious toys. So, they've just had sex. He's asleep. Um, she's still awake. It's not an uncommon situation. Um, and um, kind of enjoying herself by herself while he's asleep next to her, but she also had a good time with him. And all that while, right over him, she hung with her false eyes fast fixed in his sight, as seeking medicine, whence she was stung, or greedily depasturing delight. Um, so, seeking medicine, whence she was stung. 
That's an interesting line, and, it, and it's a good description of erotic desire. That is, um, what, what she wants is more sex, more erotic pleasure, as though that pleasure is going to be the medicine for the sting of wanting that pleasure. She's stung by erotic pleasure, and she wants more as medicine for the very thing she's stung by. It's a very good one-line description of, um, of sex, of sexual desire, of sexual desire um, while you're having sex. Um, when you get married, you'll know. Um, and the, um, but notice how that, how that actually is the equivalent of red, of, excuse me, of Guyon looking at the wealth. That is, it is, you want to be tempted by the thing you also want to resist. In this case, it's almost as though, um, it's what Milton will call in Paradise Lost and will call approvingly, he's not against this, he's for it, sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. So the idea is that part of the, it's, it's odd but true that part of um, sexuality for human beings is holding back rather than simply rushing in. That, that, um, that the flirtatious part of it, the deferral part of it, the um, slow it down part of it, um, is part of the pleasure. That is, that part of the pleasure is deferring the pleasure. That's what Milton means by sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. But notice how psychologically the idea that part of the pleasure is deferring pleasure, that's also what Guyon was doing with Mammon. That is, yeah, there's all this pleasure-giving wealth, and by not simply seizing it, I am showing my temperance. But then the pleasure is deferring, not taking. And the pleasure is in the not taking, rather than in the taking. And that's what it means. That's why temptation um, or seduction occurs through acts of self-temptation. The way a person lets himself or herself be seduced is to say, I don't want this, but I do want to experience the temptation to want this. And then, by opening yourself up to the temptation, you might be seduced. You might, you might not. But, that, but when seduction is successful, that's how it's successful. It's a version of sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. And so that's what's going on here. There's a delay here, and she wants more of the very thing um, that has made her feel that she needs something. The thing that has stung her, she wants more of that sting. Um, and all that while, right over him, she hung with her false eyes, fast fixed in his sight, as seeking medicine when she was stung, or greedily depasturing delight. Um, and oft inclining down with kisses light for fear of waking him, his lips bedewed, and through his humid eyes did suck his sprite, quite molten into lust and pleasure lewd, wherewith she sighed oft, as if his case she rude. Um, this could totally be in Buffy. Um, and then there's a song. The wiles someone did chaunt this lovely lay. So here's a song. Now, notice something that's actually um, only the greatest writers can get away with what Spencer has just written in that line, the while someone did chant this lovely lay. Um, you will almost never find this in any good work of literature unless it's the very greatest, which is that the author is now telling you that what he's about to um, uh, produce, what you're about to read, is lovely. That's not for an author to know. That's for you to decide. But Spencer is so confident about the song that he is about to produce. And as I say, 
only one of two songs in The Fairy Queen. He is so confident of its loveliness that he's willing to say that it's lovely. Shakespeare will do this in a slightly different way, which is that um, the, maybe the most famous example of this is um, to, the to be or not to be speech, which is to say that um, in Julius Caesar, um, Brutus has just given a speech in which he explains why he's killed Caesar and why it's the right thing to do, and the crowd says, yeah, you're right. Um, and they're, um, um, they're totally on his side, and Mark Antony then says, may I say a few words? And the crowd says, no, kill him, um, tear him to bits, he's a jerk, he was on Caesar's side. And Brutus is very confident, and he says, okay, the crowd's on my side, it would be, it would be un, unsportsmanlike of me um, not to let Mark Antony speak to them, um, and then I'll have done the right thing, and everything will be fine, and Rome will be a republic again. And then Mark Antony does the Friends, Romans, Countrymen speech. And at the end of that speech, he's totally won the crowd over, and they now hate Brutus, and Brutus has to flee. And Mark Antony becomes one of the um, three rulers of the Roman world. And for Shakespeare to do that, he has to be confident that an audience will believe that Mark Antony's speech is so good that everyone's mind will be changed by it. Most writers won't do that. What most writers will do is they'll have the crowd not sure how they feel, and um, Brutus might overestimate the sense in which the crowd is on his side, but then Mark Antony gives another side of things. That's all fine. But to actually have a speech which utterly changes the mind of a crowd, you have to feel like you're pretty on top of your game to be willing to do that for an audience. Shakespeare does that a couple of times in his earlier plays, has speeches change people's minds, change crowds' minds, change people who are sure they know what they want. They will listen to a speech and, and they'll say, God, that was an amazing speech, you're right. Very few writers do that, and for good reason, very few writers do that. Um, because an audience is gonna say, as soon as someone says, here, look at this beautiful poem, the audience is gonna say, Oh, really, Mr. Conceited? Let's see. But Spencer is on top of his game, and he does produce this beautiful poem, and he says it's lovely, but of course Guyon and the Palmer don't care. But notice that Spencer's investment is in the poem. It's not. That's why he calls it lovely. It's not in having Guyon and the Palmer be right about it. So here's the lovely lay. Ah, see who so fair thing dost feign to see in springing flower the image of thy day. Ah, see the virgin rose, how sweetly she doth first peep forth with bashful modesty that fairer seems the less ye see her may. So that's sweet reluctant amorous delay. The less you see her, the more you just get a peekaboo um, she, uh, flirtation with her, the fairer she seems. Lo, see soon after how more bold and free her bared bosom she doth broad display. Lo, see soon after how she fades and falls away. So the long line of the stanza is the long fading and falling away of the rose. So passeth in the passing of a day of mortal life, the leaf, the blood, the bud, the flower, nay more doth flourish after first decay, that erst was sought to deck both bed and bower of many a lady and many a paramour. So um, first it was sought to deck the bed and bower, the rose was, the flower, um, was sought to deck the um, marriage or the sexual bed, the erotic bed, of ladies and paramours, and then gather therefore the rose whilst yet is prime, that is while it's still spring. Gather therefore the rose while yet whilst yet is prime. For soon comes age that will her pride deflower. Gather the rose of love whilst yet is time. Whilst loving thou mayst love it be with equal Crime, and then the frame, then we get to the to um, 
what happens after he sings. He ceased, and then can all the choir of birds their diverse notes to tune upon his lay, unto his lay, as in approvance of his pleasing words. The constant pair heard all that he did say, yet swerved not, but kept their forward way through many covert groups and thickets close, in which they creeping did at last display that wanton lady with her lover loose, whose sleepy head she in her lap did soft dispose. Um, okay, so let's think about this song for a little while. Does anyone know the genre of song that it is? Anyone but Vino? Um, Dead Poet Society, anyone ever see it? You're lucky if you didn't. Um, Vino, do you know the genre? Carpe diem. Yeah, carpe diem. Anyone know what that means? Seize the day. Seize the day. And a particular kind of carpe diem poem, which is called a carpe florum poem, Seize the Flower. So it's Seize the Day, but in particular, Seize the Flower. And um, Seize the Day or Seize the Flower, what that basically means is life is short. There's not a lot of time to be young and have sex. Um, so while you can, do it. Do it now while you can. And notice that the form of this poem, there's a kind of morality in this poem that uses the same concepts and the same ideas that the official line of the Fairy Queen is taking. But what it says is what is going to happen if you don't seize the day is that something will be deflowered. What will be deflowered? Pride. So if the rose does not allow itself to enter into an erotic relationship, partly it's um, uh, the last two lines say gather the rose, but up until you get to the last two lines, um, what you get is you're getting this from the point of view of the rose herself. Um, and so the last two lines are basically saying something like, oh, Rose, gather the rose whilst yet is time. Um, rose, do this. Do this metaphorical thing, which is to seize the flower. Um, but if you don't, then a bad thing will happen to you, which is you will be deflowered by pride, or your pride will be deflowered, rather. Um, that age will come and deflower your pride so that Pride is a kind of insistence on virginity or the insistence on virginity is a kind of pride. That's a kind of good, maybe, critique of Guyon. The insistence on virginity comes out of a kind of pride and that pride will be deflowered. Pride is, in fact, opening itself up to a loss of its virginity by age, which is the worst <coughs> allegorical figure to lose your virginity to. Much better to do it to love than to age. So notice the rose will be deflowered if it doesn't gather the rose. It's a it's kind of complex but musical um, series of images and the rose will be deflowered, will lose its virginity or its pride will to age and therefore since it's going to happen anyhow it should happen through love rather than through age that's the, that's the burden of the song that's, what, that's the theme of the song um, and it's a really it is a lovely lay, it's very very beautiful but now I want to talk about something formal about this song. Um, and uh, what, I want to, what I want to boast is that I'm actually the person who discovered this. So I'm happy about this. Um, you, if you go back uh, to Mirth's song in uh, Canto 6, um... That song goes from stanza 15 through stanza 17. What is the form of that song? The poetic form of that song. 
this is an incredibly simple question. What kind of stanzas is that song written in? I couldn't ask a more simple question, I don't think. It starts at line one of, of stanza 15. How many, okay, let me, I can't ask a simple question, a simpler question. How many stanzas long is that song? This is simple, this is not a trick. <laughs> Sorry? Nine stanzas? No, no, how many stanzas long is Mirth's song? See, it rhymes. Three, yes, namely 15, 16, 17. See, I was not lying. This is a simple question, okay? <laughs> this is not the impossible quiz. This is a simple question. Three stanzas long. Good. How many lines in each stanza? Nine. Woo-hoo! <laughs> Guys, all right. Very steep learning curve, but you're at the top. Um, what is the form of the stanzas of the song? What kind of stanzas is the song written in? Spencerian. Ah, damn. <laughs> GREs? All 800s. Okay, great. So, a song written in three Spencerian stanzas. Any surprise to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> nice. At least, you know, if I were, if I were pre prepping you for the MCAS, you'd do well. All right. Um... No surprise. That is, he's writing in a form, and therefore, everything that appears in the poem is going to appear in the form that he's writing in, more or less. But, Ben. Um, are you commenting on the fact that, I mean, the, the, this new poem is only 17 lines? The new poem is only 17 lines long. So, that seems like if you are um, particularly um, um, anal, you might say reading The Fairy Queen. If you're particularly Guyon-like, you might say reading The Fairy Queen. Oh, but look at this. He's written a 17... He says it's a lovely lay, and yet it's 17 lines long, not only an odd number of lines, which it is, but a prime number, which is kind of weird. It's very hard to write poems in prime numbered forms, in prime numbered um, uh, stanza lengths. Uh, you can do it, and it's not impossible. There are five line stanzas. Um, there are almost no seven line stanzas in English. Generally, you want composite number stanza lengths um, because you want to have the stanza break up into reasonably um, uh, in, in, into 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 reasonable symmetries. So a nine-line stanza breaks up in ways that we've already seen. Seven-line stanzas don't. Eleven, there are no 11-line stanzas. There's actually an exception to this, but um, John Hollander's Reflections on Espionage. But generally, stanza lengths are, are composite numbers. Um, quatrains, often even numbers like quatrains. Couplets, which is a prime I know, but shut up. Um, quatrains, octets, um, dizanes, or sonnets. Those are all even-numbered line lengths. But you can have a Spencerian stanza with nine, which is a composite, um, and so on. That's a general rule because of just how you want to do the patterning. A 17-line 17 17-line song is weird, but that's what he writes. So let's just look at the song as a song. And so leave out the fruit oops, leave out the while well, the while someone chant this lovely lay. Leave that out and just look down at the song itself. The first line of the song is what? I see who so fair thing does faint see. So we will call C the A rhyme. Okay, next. What's day? Does it rhyme with C? B. What? B. B. Okay, we're getting the rhyme scheme of, the, of our little song. Um, she? A. Modesty? A. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Wait. Um, I already screwed up. C, C is A. Day is B. She is A. Right, modesty is A. Good. Um... It's hard because I want to say May is A, but of course May is not A, May is B. 
Um, May? B. B. Okay. Free? A. Display? B. Away? B. Day? B. Oh. <laughs> That's so gratifying. <laughs> that is, you have no idea. <laughs> that is incredible. Keep going. Say more. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Flower? C. Um, decay? A. I thought it was B. B. Oh, sorry, yeah. B. I've done the May thing that you did just now. Yes. Bower? C. C. Paramour? C. C. Prime? D. D. Flower? C. C. Time? Prime. Okay, so here this is this seventeen? Let's just let's check. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Good. Okay, now let's say seventeen, the closest reasonable number of lines to seventeen <coughs> for a poem would be for to break it up as as, as much as you could into reasonably sized stanzas. Four quatrains would give you how many lines? Sixteen. Let's go, let's try sixteen because that's the right answer. Okay, <laughs> so let's break it up into A, B, A, A. <clears throat> so we'll call this rhyme scheme, um, are you, would you guys freak out if I use Greek letters? Yeah, you would. Let's just use numbers though. Um, we'll say it's a one, two, one, one rhyme scheme. Okay? Then we'll do the next four lines. B, A, B, B. What do we have? One, What's two, one, scheme? one. Yep. One, two, one, one <coughs> rhyme scheme again. Let's skip this little B, this busy little B, and work from the end. So now we have the last quatrain would be D, C, D, D. One, two, one, one. One, two, one, one. <laughs> and this quadrain? One, two, one. One, two, one, one. So we have a pair of quatrains, a line right in the middle, right in the middle of the song. This is the midline of the song, and then another pair of quatrains. They all have the same rhyme scheme. The middle line is which one? Um, so part of and the passing of a day. Right. That's the transitional line. It's the line beginning with so. So passive and the passing of the day. It mimics the spring that you were telling us about the exactly. first one. So this is almost like a 17-line equivalent to a Spencerian stanza. Wow. But it's not so much that the lines are compressing and springing as that the stanzas are compressing and springing. Um, now, you may think this is true of any 17 lines in Spencer, but it obviously isn't. Because where did Vino say, oh, wow? That day. So passeth in the passing of a day. Yeah, when she saw that day was rhyming with the rhyme words of the pre with, with the rhymes of the previous stanza, usually you will not get, almost never will you get, two stanzas in the Fairy Queen where rhyme words are repeated from one, where rhymes are repeated from one stanza to the next. It's really, really, really hard to have um, four A's, one, two, three, four, and one, two, three, four, five B's in a stanza. Spencer usually doesn't do it. It's usually two A's um, and um, two C's and five B's in every stanza. Five B's, that's a lot. And to repeat those rhymes, so you get B, B, D, 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 B, all those Bs in 17 lines, and A, 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 A in, in those lines, to get all that repetition requires an enormous amount of resourcefulness in rhyming. So I think the fact that he does it here, so this is what I discovered. Um, that is that the song breaks down into... Um, this amazing symmetrical structure around a transitional line so passive in the passing of the day. 
because we're passing on to the second half of the song. Um, that's an amazing artifice, a song put into the Spencerian stanza that's of a different form than the Spencerian stanza. That's an amazing thing for him to do. But wait, there's more, as they say on late night TV. Um, one thing to notice, just if you were going to do this uh, very carefully, you would also notice that um, of many a lady and many a paramour, that's um, an Alexandrian right in the middle of the verse. It's as though he's bringing it out for you by having a line that you can say quickly enough that it feels like an iambic contaminator line, but it isn't. Of many a lady and many a power of mower. That's, that's extrametrical, as we call it. It's too long. Um, that's not, however, that interesting. It's just one of the little subtle ways that he does it. But let's, let's be Guyon and the Palmer for a minute and ignore the song. So let's go back to um, Sansa 71. Um, and um, I'm just trying to think. Um, let's start with, and oft inclining down with kisses light, for fear of waking him, his lips bedewed, and through his humid eyes did suck his sprite, quite molten into lust and pleasure lewd, wherewith she sigh it oft, as if his case she rude. The while someone did chant this lovely lay, we're going to ignore the lay because we're dying on the palmer. The while someone did chant this lovely lay, and then it picks up lay again, the same rhyme scheme. Oh my God! He ceased, <laughs> then gan all the choir of birds their diverse notes to attune unto his lay. So you can skip the song, and the poem keeps the rhyming going. That is fantastic. Yeah, it is. Hmm. Um as if in approvance of his pleasing words, the constant pair heard all that he did say, it swerved not, but kept his forward, but kept their forward way. So you cannot swerve into this song. You can just skip the song if you want, and the poem will keep its forward way. We'll just go on. Um, but that also suggests that the song doesn't interfere with anything. It's this moment of beauty that isn't interfering with human life. And yet, Guyon and the Palmer go around destroying things. Um, as Ben uh, was saying in class last time, rather intemperately. Then we get, let's just end with this, but then we get into, into book three. What's the surprise about the beginning of book three? How does book three begin differently from the way book two begins? In other words, there's no surprise at the beginning of book one. That's just starting things off. But the beginning of book two tells you um, gives you the first example of a transition from one book to another and therefore from one night to another. How does that transition work at the beginning of book two? Two nights meet each other. Two nights meet each other and they're about to, but they don't. Okay, good. Man. Awesome at Mad Libs. <laughs> right. Um, I had a history teacher in eighth grade who's... Um, really work-saving idea was that we would write all the quiz questions, that is, every we would do the reading every night and then hand in a quiz question. Um, and uh, we would first practice in class by trying to answer the questions in class, but then the final exam consisted of all the questions that people handed in. And what, what people quickly realized was the easiest way to ask a question for the class was using blanks. So they would just open their books at random, pick some sentence, and just put a blank in the sentence. So I remember, you know, there would be something like, um, uh, blank was the, um, blank crossed the Rubicon um, in order to, to take over the Roman government. And so, so it's Julius Caesar. But um, we being eighth graders and all, people started getting a little bit Baroque about this. So people started putting in two blanks into sentences. Um, and then I remember one quite vividly that had three blanks, and the sentence was, the blank was a blank for the blank. Um, <laughs> and so, so one person, at, so, so this moron teacher reads, um, reads this question to the class, and then someone else who I realized, being a moron myself, maybe 20 years later, was in cahoots with the person who wrote the question. His hand goes up, and he says, the Parthenon was a temple for the gods. And the teacher nods and says, that's right. Um, and um, then finally someone came in, some daring young person, um, submitted, 
the blank, 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 blank. Um, and he read it. Um, and then someone else answered the question, and he was impressed. Um, and then one day, um, the principal came in and said that Mr. Camelgore was emotionally disturbed and that he would take over the class for the rest of the term. Um, and um, <laughs> Best ending to that story ever. Yes. And then we had to do the reading again. Um, My God. So what I don't know about Roman history is due to that class. <laughs> um, he also defined a civil war as a war between the civilians of two, of oh two countries. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so... Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's Mad Libs for you. It's, it may seem legit, but seem would be the operative word here. It seems legit, but it isn't legit. Um, all right, so beginning of book three, we now kind of know from the beginning of book two that a good way to transition to the next book of the Fairy Queen is to have the knight of the previous book meet the knight of the next book, and they should meet, and maybe they should be about to fight, but then they should recognize each other, and they shouldn't fight because it should all because they're all on the same page and on the same side. They so what fight. happens? They do, they fight. do fight. Big surprise. They do fight. Think about for Monday. Um, I, I think get to get to Canto 8. You know, be, it would be swell if you finished, but we're going to be spending a bunch of time on book 3. Actually, I think I gave us extra time on book 3 already anyhow. So get to Canto 8 by Monday. Think about why do Britomart and Guyon fight? And why does Britomart win that fight? Um, what is going on there? There's a lot of fighting. Sorry? There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of fighting. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All exciting all the time. All right, have a good weekend, guys. Oh, stranger, let's fight. Yeah. What, what an incredible do? discovery. Here, keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> she just said, what an incredible discovery. Yes, thank you. Is that being recording us? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's being podcasted. Yeah. So you can. So we're gonna stop talking. I had no. Yes, I told you the first.